Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we'll hear what a New Jersey U.S. Senator wants to see when it comes to battling future pandemics. Explore the stark health and economic disparities which led to minority and low-income communities bearing the brunt of this pandemic. I'll chat with reporter Bob Henley about a shift in the labor movement when it comes to unions. With the inability of government and corporations to have a quick fix for this mess, we were all forced to put our families first, and that's a big shift, Doug, away from being driven only by making money. We're here about growing forward and how it's helping youth leaders of tomorrow. Just as much as you are responsible for your academics in college, you are just as responsible for your social behavior in college. And I'll chat with two of the people responsible for the Doo-Wop Project. We could have done one concert and that would have been it, but we've done hundreds all over the country, all over the world. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. With a goal in mind to make sure the U.S. is better prepared for the next pandemic, a bill is in Congress that would provide for an investigation of the U.S. response to the coronavirus pandemic. WBGO's Janice Kirkell has more. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is urging passage of the Prevent Pandemics Act, which includes provisions for a national COVID-19 task force to examine where the U.S. response to the pandemic came up short. Crucially, it will explore the stark health and economic disparities which led to minority and low-income communities bearing the brunt of this pandemic. It is my hope that Congress will act quickly so we can send it to President Biden's desk. Menendez spoke in Washington at an event held by COVID activists as part of their National Week for COVID Remembrance and Action, which comes as the U.S. approaches one million deaths from COVID. Sabila Khan of New Jersey lost her father to COVID. In April 2020, the COVID death toll in the U.S. was 26,000. Two years later, we've added almost 974,000 lives to that tally. How did we get here? What went wrong? The COVID bereaved are here today to demand answers. The Prevent Pandemics Act would also improve the public health response to pandemics, speed up research, and combat shortages of life-saving medical supplies. Janice Kirkell, WBGO News. This past Thursday was Workers' Memorial Day, which was established to honor those workers who over the previous year lost their lives due to injuries they suffered or diseases they contracted while they were on the job. This year's commemoration comes more than two years into the COVID pandemic that has claimed the lives of more than one million Americans, including thousands of essential workers who died as a result of an on-the-job exposure to the killer virus. It also comes at a time when a record number of Americans are quitting their jobs. With us now to make some sense out of these trends is WBGO's Bob Henley. Bob, thanks for joining us on the WBGO Journal. It seems everywhere you look, there are help wanted signs. What's going on? Well, first, thanks for having me, Doug. Yeah, uh, labor demographers are calling it the great, great resignation. Last year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 47 million Americans quit their job. And the data we have seen in the, uh, the year so far shows we're on pace to break that record, Doug, with 4 million people exiting each month. To give you a sense of the scale of this, consider that the entire enrollment of the AFL-CIO nationally is 12.5 million workers. What do you think is driving this trend? You can't discount the role of the pandemic. In surveys of these workers, researchers have reported that for some employees, 
they felt their employer failed to protect them on the job. That could run the gamut from not having the proper PPE to their hours being cut without notice to slow the spread of the virus. Let's face it, society as we knew it was upended and hit women workers particularly hard. Millions of female employees were forced to stay home when school went remote and a generation of our kids were kept home. With the inability of government and corporations to have a quick fix for this mess, we were all forced to put our families first. And that's a big shift, Doug, away from being driven only by making money. But like every major trend in history, this really is a confluence of things. There was a really important article in the Harvard Business Review in March that observed rightly that this trend started before the pandemic. We knew that we would see baby boomers like you and I retiring pre-COVID, but COVID has really accelerated the trend. So is there a connection between the great resignation and what appears to be a significant increase in the number of union organizing efforts we're seeing. It seems a day doesn't go by that we don't read about workers trying to form a union in a Starbucks or Amazon warehouse. Is there a labor union revival going on? Yes, but we do have to contextualize this. Consider just how much labor unions have shrunk in terms of their share of the entire nation's workforce. In 1983, over 20% of workers were in a union. That hovers around 10% now, although we do see about a third of public sector government workers in a union. What we are seeing is a surge in workers asking for the National Labor Relations Board to hold a union election, which is the first step to forming a union. In April alone, we saw 200 such applications, including 50 at different Starbucks locations around the country. For historical context, in all the last fiscal year, the NRLB held 954 union elections. In April alone, we saw 200 such applications, including 50 at different Starbucks locations around the country. For historical context, in all of the last fiscal year, the NRLB held 954 union elections. That would average out to be just 100 a month. So we're almost, in April, double that. A few weeks back, we saw the independent Amazon labor union win their vote to organize Amazon's Staten Island facility, making it the first such Amazon facility to go union. The leaders of that drive, led by Chris Smalls, were contacted by workers dug from dozens of Amazon sites across the country. I know you've been covering that story, Bob. What do you think that effort was successful while previous such efforts fell short? And I think you've been looking at an Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama. What's that all about? Well, in the Bessemer election, it was a rerun that was ordered by the National Labor Relations Board because it agreed with the retail, wholesale, and department store workers union that Amazon engaged in improper practices leading up to the vote. That means things like forcing workers to go into these high-pressure meetings where they are barraged by anti-union propaganda and even where organizers are targeted improperly and illegally by Amazon. That vote is going to be contested again. It was contested by the union. It's now going to be a long-term process. I think what we have to keep in mind is that in New York, there's a tradition of supporting the labor movement. And so the organizers in the Amazon effort in Staten Island had the uh, tradition that New York City and New York State is a strong, they strong labor, both a city and state. In the case of Alabama, it's a right to work state where it's been harder for unions to get traction. And also... In the case of uh, Staten Island, it started in a situation where Chris Smalls was actually a supervisor, where he felt that he was being told to do the wrong thing for his, his co-workers he supervised, because he was being 
they were trying to suppress information about who had COVID. So it was an immediate response to the situation that came out of COVID. And that's where we saw traction because Amazon, like so many other large corporations, really stumbled through that process and they didn't have much help from the government. So I, I do think that it's a little bit apples and oranges, but the broad context is the nation's on the move and it's been driven mainly by young people. You mentioned that workplace safety during COVID has factored in the great resignation and helped provide momentum for all of these union drives. What do we really know about the impact of COVID on essential workers? Well, sad to say, we really don't know. Thanks to the Guardian and Kaiser Health News, they did a, uh, a very uh, solid investigative report for the first year of the COVID outbreak. They found that 3,600 uh, U.S. healthcare workers died as a result of their occupational exposure to COVID. Uh, right now, thanks to the work of the AFL-CIO nationally, the CDC is undertaking the first of its kind, a review over the next six months to look at the occupational exposures and deaths from COVID. We do not now, as we speak, have a registry. We know that several hundred firefighters across the country, EMTs, passed as a result of their COVID exposure, many of it happening before there was a vaccine. We also know that um, we're dealing with long-haul COVID. The GAO just uh, put out a report that 23 million Americans have been affected by a long-term uh, symptom of COVID, and one million of them have had to leave the workforce. So we are just barely getting our arms around this. It's also important to know that even without the pandemic, according to the AFL-CO's AFL annual report, Death on the Job, 340 people die a day as a consequence of unpandemic-related hazards in the workplace. 120,000 die a year as a consequence of work-related diseases that folks contract. So unions have been historically a key part of making the workplace safer. It's estimated that hundreds of thousands of workers' lives have been saved since OSHA was put in place thanks to the hard work of the AFL-CIO. So I guess we have a better understanding why there is such a workers' Memorial Day. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. You're listening to the WBGO Journal. Advocates in New Jersey are expressing concerns about plans to add more state troopers next year. WBGO's Kenneth Burns reports they want to have a conversation with the Murphy administration first before any recruiting happens. Governor Phil Murphy says a second recruitment class is needed in 2023 to maintain the number of troopers needed amid high attrition. Stephen Young is with the South Jersey chapter of the National Action Network. He questions why alternatives to increasing the force aren't being considered. Why not assist the community with policing their own community? And if there's a solutions to do that, why aren't we spending money with that? Marlena Ubel, with New Jersey Policy Perspective, says there's an opportunity to do something transformative with the money from the American Rescue Plan that's being used to pay for more troopers. Invest in alternative response professionals, mental health professionals, behavioral health professionals that can respond to crises in a way that is unarmed. Advocates have expressed disappointment in politicians who opted to spend more on policing after standing next to them during protests against the police murder of George Floyd two years ago. Kenneth Burns, WBGO News. Cultivating tomorrow's leaders. That's what the organization Growing Forward is all about. That's growing the numeral for Ward. WBGO's resident reporter James Frazier has the story. 
According to the Post-Secondary National Policy Institute, between 2009 and 2019, the number of black undergraduates who enrolled right after high school decreased from 2.5 million students to 2.1 million. History has shown that a college degree doesn't guarantee success in life, but people with higher education are less likely to live below the poverty line. Carlos Walton, founder and executive director of the Youth Development Initiative Growing Forward Incorporated, is providing a platform to keep young adults focused on higher learning and breaking the generational curse of poverty. Growing Forward is a youth development um, initiative. Uh, we focus on college tours. Uh, we do an annual seven-day college tour. I've been doing this for over 20 years. Um, an annual seven-day college tour, which goes from New York, New Jersey to Baltimore, D.C., Virginia, North Carolina, and Atlanta. We see 10 historically black colleges. I'm a product of Hampton University myself, so a strong advocate for HBCUs. And I'm actually working on my doctorate right now, and my dissertation is focused on HBCUs and black men matriculation. Mr. Walton understands that college is more than academics. In addition to the tour, there is a series of workshops and events that prepare young adults for the next level of life and schooling. Brothers and sisters on a bus, chaperone with some young brothers and sisters. Um, we got the wisdom, we got the discussions, we have the information. We go to Howard's campus and we got an open mic because Howard has that vibe, the Mecca, you know. And um, then we go to North Carolina A&T and they have a big, beautiful campus. So we have a field day so they can understand that there's a social aspect to college. There's a social aspect of interaction that exists. And you need to be prepared for that as well, because a lot of people go away to school and get caught up. At the same time, just as much as you are responsible for your academics in college, you are just as responsible for your social behavior in college. The Growing Forward College Tour isn't a spectator sport. Students walk on some multiple campuses prepared to impress the admissions department. Because young people are applying on the spot, but you gotta understand, we're taking full advantage of everything. So when we get to these campuses, they're right up in these admission offices, they already prepared their Growing Forward packet, SATs, transcript, letters of recommendation, the usual stuff. But then in addition, certificates you receive, the community service you've done, the extra efforts you've done as a young person. Mr. Walton also produces an initiative which takes young men to Washington, D.C. for the Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference. They have workshops on, on handshakes and elevated pitches. They have workshops on the history of the caucus. And we have workshops on the power of leadership in politics and entering that world. So when they get down to D.C., the young men are well-versed. Um, we got to make sure in ties, um, they're, they're networking, they're, they're experiencing something different, you know. They're out there with their badges feeling really important because to get in the caucus, you have to have your badge with your name on it. And, um, yeah, they're taking full advantage of all that it offers. And it offers a lot. The caucus is a powerful, powerful thing that I think more students and more of us need to be present for. It's a wonderful networking platform. Although Carlos is an advocate for students attending college, he knows that all high school graduates will not go by choice or by circumstance. Furthermore, he admits that college isn't the only pathway for success. A lot of people that come from my come off of my college tours, they don't go to college, a lot of them. Some of them come home and they just get super serious. Some of them come home and start looking at opportunities in a, in a way they never looked at opportunities before. Some of them come home and go to local schools, but now they go into school with a different type of drive. To donate or get more information on the next college tour, Visit growingforward.org. For the WBGO Journal, I'm James Frazier in Newark.
Center at Stony Brook University on Long Island presents on Saturday, May 7th, the Doo-Wop Project. The Doo-Wop Project takes the audience on a journey from foundational tunes of groups like the Crests and the Belmonts and the Flamingos through their influences on the sounds of Smokey Robinson, the Temptations, and the Four Seasons, all the way to Doo-Wop-fied versions of modern musicians like Jason Mraz and even Maroon 5. Featuring stars of Broadway's smash hits, Jersey Boys and Motown, the musical. Expect the collected talent of the Doo-Wop Project to knock your socks off, and they indeed do. And joining us are two members of the Doo-Wop Project, Tony nominee actor Charles Brown and musical director Sonny Palladino. Thanks for joining us on the WBGO Journal. Hey, thanks for having us. Happy to be here, yeah. Charles no introduction really necessary if you're a Broadway fan to Charles because he received a 2013 Tony nomination for Best Featured Actor in a Musical for his portrayal of, the aforementioned, Smokey Robinson in Motown the Musical. I imagine that was a blast. Oh, yes. It was quite incredible. I mean, to get to play the icon himself, but also to have him in the audience a few times and to get to play it in front of him was legendary. <laughs> pressure performing in front <laughs> no, of Smokey? No pressure. <laughs> you know, there was so, yeah, it was, it was incredible. There was a lot of pressure, but at the same time, because we worked directly with Barry Gordy the whole time, who was our um, producer and he wrote the book to our show. A lot of that was alleviated because we really got indoctrinated into the whole Motown lexicon, if you will, from the, an early point. So it was really just comforting to have all the stars come and see us, you know, portray them and to get to sing their music. So, and Smokey is a class act. Whenever he was there, he was so gracious and kind. And um, I tell this story that um, when he would come to the show afterwards, he would uh, see me and he'd open his arms and say, hey, me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that was amazing. Hey, and that's fantastic. And that's also an affirmation that you did a great job. Yes, but the best affirmation was after opening night, when Diana Ross herself surprised us, and they all came on stage and she was standing next to me. And when the curtain came down, she turned to me. And she said, boy, you really do have smoky down, don't you? <laughs> I was like, I'm done. Endorsed by the boss. I'm done. <laughs> wow. And musical director Sonny Palladino of the Doo-Wop Project is a Long Island native growing up in Ronkonkoma, studying piano at Stony Brook, and just yeah. an overall musical head because he's been doing it for quite a while. You have to be so excited about the Doo-Wop Project. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up around this music um, on Long Island. My, my uncle was in uh, the great band Johnny Maestro on the Brooklyn Bridge. And, um, you know, I grew up all around Long Island watching him perform. And um, he played piano in that group and keyboard and trumpet. So uh, it was definitely an inspiration for me. 
Uh, and as a, uh, I grew up in Ronkonkoma, so near Stony Brook. And uh, at a certain point, my mother said, I think you need to take, you know, uh, real professional lessons. And, and she'd drive me to the Staller Center. And uh, I took lessons with grad, graduate students there and got my chops up um, before making it to Broadway. So I guess uh, Stony Brook really helped me do that. So tell us a little bit about uh, the relationship you have there with, with your uncle. Yeah, I mean, he, he's my godfather and uh, would come over and, and teach me piano, teach me licks and really gave me a foundation to the rock and roll music. Uh, and it, it's interesting. I, I'm currently uh, the music director of another show uh, at, at the Paperville Playhouse um, about the life of Dion DiMucci. Uh, and the Duo Project, we do uh, a few of Dion's songs. And my uncle's band, it's a little known fact, the... Um, the Del Satins wound up joining with Johnny Maestro and they became the Brooklyn Bridge. And the Del Satins wound up singing on Dion's Runaround Sue album. And so growing up on Long Island, seeing my uncle's band perform, they would always do uh, the quote unquote Dion set. I had no idea what that meant. Um, <laughs> and I just knew the tunes. So I, I've just been around this music forever. And uh, some of the guys in some of these great singers came to me many years ago and they said, you know, do you have any interest or experience with doo music? And I was like, well, kind of. <laughs> so, <laughs> sort of. You certainly do. And, you know, doo it, it has fans that have never left, right? Because right. The, it's incredible music that it combines so many different genres and so many different sounds. And, We've already talked about some of the groups that are iconic, but there are many more. Charles, your favorite doo-wop group ever? Well, you know, I got to say Smokey and the Miracles. <laughs> they started off as a doo-wop group in the early 50s when, you know, they were first starting Motown. And then Smokey, of course, went out on his own. But there was something about um, his high voice. And then they also had a female in the group as well. His wife, in fact, Claudette Robinson, his first wife, um, and then the other guys um, that made their blend so special to me because, you know, Smokey was singing high and lead and, and falsetto a lot, but then they also had a female voice. And I feel like there were there were a few groups, of course, that had, um, you know, male and female components, but there was something about the Miracles that I really loved their doo-wop style. For you, Sonny, what is it about doo-wop that really makes you, you know, get excited inside? Because this is, as you mentioned, this has been a part of you for a long time, but you're still a young guy. So, <laughs> so whether or not th this music, it, it still resonates with you, though. Yeah, I mean, there's something about the, the street corner, you know, rough and tough sound. Um, you know, it's very different from like barbershop quartet kind of vocal music, which is you know, really polished. Um, we, we always strive to really make it sound like street corner music. These, these guys grew up, you know, they were immigrants. They didn't have money for instruments. And so they, they would become the instruments and, and sing in four or five part harmony. And, um, you know, our bass man, Dwayne Cooper, you know, they'd have their bass singer who would lay down the foundation. Then you have the, the three part chord in the middle, and then you have the, the lead line on top. 
And, uh, you know, that that vocal sound mixed with that early rock and roll music that's just infectious and, and um, you know, is such a part of the American music tradition. Um, it, it's just really been there my whole life. And, and we're, we're so happy to get to continue that that uh, legacy. This, you know, we, we started off, we, this group is about 10 years old and we started off just a couple of guys wanting to continue that tradition. We didn't know what would happen with it, but uh, we, we could have done one concert and that would have been it. But we've done hundreds all over the country, all over the world. We've toured through China. We've been, you know, we play with all the major symphonies in the country. And I think what really brings people back is is that sound where we're able to continue that sound and um yeah we, we just love it even young kids of today when they hear certain sounds they you know that they go they might not know the group but they know the tune right they might not know that it was the crest or the belmonts or the flamingos but they've heard it before and they go it might have been sampled it might have been anything that that goes on one tune in particular in our show um uh, which the audience might not know the name of that we, exactly what you say. It's, it's called come go with me. And we say, Oh, we'd like you to sing along with us. And you can tell not everyone knows the tune, but by the, we sing it by the second measure. Everyone's singing dum, 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 dum. Everyone sings it. You just know these tunes. They're just part of the vernacular in, in, in America really. And, and the world. So you can't start singing that without me wanting to join in, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. Charles, what can we expect? Now, now the audiences at NJ Pack in Newark got to see it uh, last weekend, but coming up on May 7th, the Doo-Wop Project comes to Stony Brook University on Long Island. What can people expect when they come to see the Doo-Wop Project? People can expect to be transported back to their youth for some of them and for the younger audience to be pleasantly surprised by music that uh, isn't necessarily current, but has a lasting appeal for them. Also, too, we do wopify modern pop songs. So there's some recognizable, you know, radio tunes that are on the radio today that we do in the style of doo-wop. You done done me in your bed, I felt it I tried to be chill, but you're so hot that I melted I fell right through the cracks Now I'm trying to get back Before the cool down run out, I'll be giving it my bestness And nothing's gonna stop me but divine intervention I reckon it's again my turn To win some or learn some But I won't hesitate no more No more So that always surprises people. In fact, we do Wapify a country song, which is a real fan favorite that happens. I won't give it away which one it is. We like to let the audience sort of guess what that's going to be. So they're in for a trip down memory lane, but also a trip forward into the future and a way of melding like the old school with the new school, um, old school with the new generation. So you have Charles Brown and you have the musical direction of Sonny Palladino and when something's been around for 10 years, it means it's working, folks. It means it's good. It means <laughs> yeah. it's good. It means it's successful. And the Doo-Wop Project continues as a, this tour has been going on. But Saturday, May 7th, at the Stoller Center at Stony Brook University on Long Island, Sonny Palladino and Charles Brown, we appreciate your time on the WBGO Journal, and thanks for entertaining us.
Thank you. Thanks for having us. See you at the Stoller Center. You can see my entire interview with Charles Brown and Sonny Palladino on the WBGO Facebook page. And finally, congratulations to Newark's own legendary jazz composer and saxophonist Wayne Shorter. Even though Wayne was not able to physically attend Friday's street renaming ceremony, he did send a big thank you video message for the invite-only crowd. Park Place has now been officially redesignated as Wayne Shorter Way. Wayne Shorter grew up in Newark's Ironbound section and attended Arts High. Back in 2017, he spoke with WBGO's Nate Chenin about his formative years in a place that conjured up a lot of imagination. There were hardly any trumpet players in, in Newark at the time. So we take, our, my brother and I, we take the saxophone mouthpiece off and we're Dizzy's big band with, or, or Canton, they go, bam, bam, bam. We take the mouthpiece off and go, <laughs> put it back on real quick. <laughs> so we can catch the next line and uh we we did crazy stuff my, my brother carried his uh to the, we would play like those dances at the ymca mm-hmm. there would be 10 people would come and because they would try to dance to this kind this kind of stuff like that kind of stuff like that he would bring his horn in a shopping bag and and play his horn and he had an alto he played his, with gloves on and then we'd go go to the dance uh, uh, on a Saturday wearing uh, galoshes when it wasn't raining. That's what bebop was about. Instead of having music stands, we'd take a chair and put it in front of the chair we're sitting in and turn the chair around and put the Star Ledger or the New York Times uh, and, and like like we're reading notes, but we're <laughs> reading the news and playing at the same time. Right. Reading headlines. <laughs> Wayne Shorter has certainly left some amazing footprints in the city of Newark. For more information about yesterday's street renaming ceremony, you can go to WBGO.org. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. Meanwhile, keep it right here on the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.